2 Corinthians chapter 7. We uh, read the first verse of chapter 7 last week as part of the text that began in chapter 6, but we did not look closely at this verse, which uh, doesn't always concern me overmuch. If we uh, looked very, very closely at every single verse we read each Sunday morning and evening in worship, we would not make it very far in Scripture. That's the thing about this weekly mining of God's Word. We can't typically chase down every little vein of ore. We, we sort of have to stick with the, uh, the mother load of the passage. But uh, as I was preparing uh, to move along to the second verse, uh, it uh, occurred to me that there's simply too much here. There's too much in verse 1 to leave it untreated. It's one of those verses that, that reminds me uh, of those other summaries in Scripture that say in just a few words uh, and describe in a few compact words the greatest part of our salvation, which is our sanctification, our growth in holiness, our being conformed to the image of Christ. Passages like, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you both to will and to work uh, for his good pleasure. Or, therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and sin that uh, weighs us down, uh, clings so closely that Uh, And let us run with perseverance the race set before us. You know, those sort of passages that uh, are absolutely packed with treasure. Well, this is one of those. Let's go to it after we pray. Father, we we ask your blessing on your word. We pray that you will uh, cause it to accomplish all that for which you send it. In Jesus' name, amen. 2 Corinthians 7, verse 1. Since we have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. Well, here in a nutshell, dear ones, is our entire Christian life summed up in a single sentence. Here is what you and I will want others to remember us, how we will want the Lord to see our lives, how we will want to have lived them when the end of our days quickly comes upon us, as it most certainly will. This is the summons of Scripture, the summary of the Christian soldier's battle, the saint's singular pursuit, holiness. The spoken or unspoken evaluation of your life at your funeral will not be how much money you made or what kind of house you lived in or how high you climbed the corporate ladder, how successful you were in business, how many books you read, how smart you were, how many degrees you attained, or even how happy you were. Nor will the evaluation of heaven Here's the one test to which we must all submit. Character. And flowing from character, behavior. All pretense must disappear. All masks fall from our faces. All emotion fade away. When the question comes down to this, was she a good woman? 
Was she, was he a good man? In other words, was she holy? Was he pure? In some, did he, did she live a genuine Christian life? A holy life. Paul describes the Christian life to us here, even as the Spirit of God is calling us to it, and we hear his voice this morning supplying us the motive and the method and the means for living this holy life to which we're called. First, dear flock, consider with me the motive. What's the motive for this holy life? Motive, after all, is everything, isn't it? If it's anything, it's everything. Motive makes the same, the exact same action, beautiful or ugly, worthy or worthless, noble or base. There are lots of preachers standing in pulpits all over the world this morning, calling congregations to holiness, to holy lives. For some of those congregations, that summons is like a pair of eagle's wings on which they will soar in the Christian life to new heights. And for others, it's, that call is like, like a pair of cruel handcuffs, just another set of shackles upon shackles by which their miserable souls are made the more miserable and bound. Same call to holiness. Utterly different effects. How can that be? Well, here's the difference. Here's all the difference. Motive. If I tell you this morning, if I tell you to live a holy life because that is how you will make God pleased with you, how you will curry his favor toward you, or God forbid, because that's how you make other people pleased with you or admire you, then I have just delivered to you a miserable, damnable call that you will never, ever be able to answer. Hear me, I am not calling you to a holy life so that you may make God love you. I'm calling you to a holy life because God loves you. You see the difference? I'm calling you to to a holy life this morning not to get God to respond to you but to a holy life is your response to God. Listen how Paul begins. Since we have these promises, since we have these promises, don't miss the motive. Why should we live holy lives? Because we have God's promises, God's rich and wonderful promises. What promises? Oh, remember last week, back in chapter six, God's covenant promise. I will be their God. They shall be my people. This is God's covenant promise to us through scripture, literally from cover to cover, from Genesis to Revelation. He repeats it all the way through. We are God's people. He is our God. How so? By his grace. By his grace. All by his grace. It was he who said we shall be his people. He who chose us. He who set us apart. He who shed his blood to purchase us. He who has gathered us like chicks under 
a hen's wing. He who has given us his name, he who has provided us for us, he who is our faithful God. And as our covenant-keeping God, he gives us two wonderful promises I want to highlight from chapter 6, intimacy and paternity. First, intimacy. I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them. Let your imagination fly here. He walks among us. And so he has. He has, in fact, he's made you his residence. That's how closely he walks with you. You are the Spirit's residence. Everywhere you go, God goes. So we're never, never alone. In the deepest darkness, in the loneliest haunts, in the longest valleys, in the deepest waters, in the hottest fires, he is always, always, always right there. Never will I leave you, never will I forsake you, he says. We alienated him, didn't we? We pushed him away. We shoved him away by our sin and built a wall between ourselves and him and he has broken down that wall. He has restored that relationship. He has reconciled us to himself and now he is our constant company keeper. No distant, disinterested deity he. No indifferent God somewhere on a mountaintop, you know, untouched by our troubles. No, he is walking with us ever and always, bearing us up, directing every detail, in fact, for our good. Through the deep waters I cause you to go. The rivers, how's it go? The rivers of life shall not overthrow, for I shall be with thee, thy troubles to bless and sanctify to you your deepest distress. Second paternity. I will be a father to you and you are my sons. You are my daughters. You hear God's voice. I was talking to a young man over dinner on Friday evening who told me he never knew his father. Never knew him. 33 years old, this young man is. Never met his father until just a few years ago. Met him once, and then not long after that, he died. My, how our human fathers have often failed us, haven't they? Leaving unfillable, gaping holes in human lives. But you and I, no matter how poorly or how well, Our earthly fathers have treated us. We have a father. You have a father who loves you so tenderly, so well, has treated you so well, who dandles you on his knee, who delights in you, who, if you can can take this in, who sings over you. That's what the scripture says. And his father will never fail or abandon. He'll never over-discipline you, nor will he under-discipline you. That's how faithful a father he is. 
He's a perfect father, and because you and I are his children, God has sent his spirit into our hearts to cry, Abba, Father. We are heirs of the covenant and our children with us. Those are his promises, just a, just a couple of them, all of which are yea and amen in Christ. And if that's not a good motive, if that's not the perfect motive for you to live a life of holiness and obedience to him, then, then you tell me what is. Since we have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves. Holiness is simply, you see, the practical response of knowing who you are. I'm a child of the king. That's who I am. We remember at the beginning of 1 Corinthians, I told you, I told you, however long ago, once about 80 weeks ago, judging from the numbers of my sermons, 80 weeks ago I told you I'd remind you of 1 Corinthians 1. You are his saints. That's who you are. And now the scripture says, be who you are. Be who you are. It's for this reason that God has spoken to us, for this reason that Christ came into our darkness, for this reason that he lived, for this reason that he died, for this reason that he rose again, for this reason that he has sent his spirit into your hearts, for this reason that he rules over all things, not simply to make you happy, but to make you happy toward the end that you should be holy. He has saved us, the scripture says, to make a people zealous for good works. That's why he saved you. Since we have these promises, beloved, that's our motive for holy living, the promises. Second, consider the method, or what I'm calling the method anyway, of a holy life. It's all fine and good to say we must live holy lives. But what does that look like when the rubber meets the road? Well, look again. Since we have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. Now, I don't know if you heard them, but, but there seem to be two parts involved here, don't there? Two parts, which if, if that's what Paul is saying, Paul's being perfectly consistent with what he says everywhere else in his letters. A holy life consists of two things, putting off and putting on. Of mortification, that is of killing, and vivification, that is bringing to life. Killing sin, practicing righteousness. Though the greater emphasis is always on the latter than the former. As Dietrich Bonhoeffer once wrote, being a Christian is less about cautiously avoiding sin than about courageously and actively doing God's will. So two things, cleansing ourselves from every defilement of body and soul and bringing holiness to completion. So first, brothers and sisters, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit. Now, if you're listening closely and you have a sense of your utter and complete dependence upon and helplessness apart from God's grace, then you have just been rocked back on your heels by this pronoun, ourselves. Cleanse ourselves? Really, Paul? Do you, don't you mean, to, Paul, Paul, don't you mean to say, be cleansed? 
Isn't that the voice with which you mean to speak at the, the passive, like, like you used just a few minutes ago or a few verses ago, be reconciled? No, no, says Paul. I mean what I say, and I say what I mean by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. You heard me. Cleanse yourselves. Now, we know what Paul means. He doesn't mean that we're able to cleanse our sins away. Only Christ can wash away our sins by his blood, and he has for those who are in him. That is why, the only reason why he calls us saints, holy ones. Christ has made us holy. He has forgiven our sins. He's washed away our black stains with his red blood and left us sparkling white in his sight. We did not cooperate with him in that. Indeed, we could not for the simple reason that we were, Paul says, dead. Dead in our sins and trespasses. And we know what dead people do, don't we? Nothing. They do nothing for themselves. That's, the, that's one kind of holiness. That's the kind of holiness, the holiness that's been accomplished for us and applied to us once and for all. Sometimes we call that because we, uh, we call that imputed righteousness. That is the righteousness of Christ that has been placed on our account before God. But the Bible speaks of another kind of holiness, there are two kinds of holiness in the Bible. There's another kind of righteousness. Sometimes we call it practical righteousness, practical holiness. That is the holiness that, uh, that we put into practice in our lives precisely because we are holy, because of the righteousness of Christ imputed to our accounts when he bore our sins on the cross in our place. In this matter of practical righteousness the bible does engage you and it calls you to participate this is wonderful actually this is so so stealing so wonderful so engaging he does engage us he calls us to participate even co-operate in this matter with god's spirit it's amazing. So we may say that God cleanses us, and he has, but we may also say with Paul that we have to cleanse ourselves. Christ's imputed righteousness, you see, is not a pillow on which idle people may rest their idle heads. No. Christ's righteousness imputed to us, it's a, it's a, it's a trumpet call, isn't it? It's a call to action, to the pursuit of practical righteousness on our part which which action by the way is made certain of success by christ's imputed righteousness in the first place now notice that i say cooperate or participate there's one more little caveat i want to put on this clearly we're no more able to practice righteousness on our own than we are to impute righteousness to ourselves when we're saved, if, we, if we're left to ourselves in this task of cleansing ourselves, well, we're in one impossible spot, aren't we? As one old preacher put it, it's as easy for a man to lift himself from the ground by his own shoulders as it is for us to rise to greater heights of moral conduct by our own efforts. But... 
If we can believe that God gives the impulse after purity and the vision of what purity is and imparts the power of attaining it, strengthening at once our dim sight and stirring our feeble desires and energizing our crippled limbs, then we can run with endurance the race marked out for us, right? So back to the point. You all understand that. So I go back to the point. We must cleanse ourselves from every defilement, every defilement of body and spirit. That is, we must put off everything that is sinful, not only outwardly, but inwardly. Not only the deeds that we do, but the thoughts that we think. God is as interested, in fact, in some ways even more interested in what's going on in here than what's going on out here. What's going on in our inward self, since it is, as Scripture teaches us, out of the overflow of the heart that our mouths speak. It is, as Jesus says, as a man thinks that he lives. So I put it to you now, Christians. All of you in the hearing of my voice, what is it that defiles your body? With what are you defiling your body and defiling your mind? You know best. You know how you're using your body in ways that are sinful, that is actually soiling and dirtying that body that God has given you and then turned around and purchased by his own blood, by his own body, as a matter of fact, his body for your body for holy purposes. I could make a list, and I'm tempted to do so, but I'm afraid that if I make a list for you and leave off the defiling thing that you're doing, then you think that maybe that's not such a bad thing after all. So I'm going to break the preaching rule, and I'm not going to tell you. I'm not going to make the application. I'm going to pass that burden on to you. How are you defiling your body? How are you defiling your mind? And what activities are you engaging your body, your eyes, your hands, your brain, your members? Christian, since you have, since you have the promises of God, cleanse yourself of them. Stop them. Put them away. Jesus died not only for your soul. He died for your body. He died to sanctify your body, to make your body holy. And as you profess in this house, it belongs to him. Your body is his property, isn't it? Of course it is. He bought it. He paid for it. And he made it in the first place. Of course it's his. You belong. You've told him. I belong to you, body and soul. Which leads me to ask you to ask yourself and to answer honestly now, what is it that defiles your spirit? What thoughts are you entertaining? What jealousies? What covetings, what fantasies, what lusts, what hatreds, what grudges, what fears, what pride is defiling that heart of yours, that spirit of yours. You identify them. You lay your finger on them and then you, you, by God's power, we made that clear, you sweep them away. By the broom, 
if I may say so reverently, the broom of the spirit, you sweep them out, force them out, put them to death. You are a child of God. That is who you are. Take those thoughts captive to Christ now. And when Satan comes along and starts whispering in your ear again, you resist him and find out that it is true. When you resist the devil, he does flee. But if you put out the welcome mat, he's more than glad to come in. But he never stays in the porch or the front hall, does he? That's the first part of the, the method of holiness. I'm tempted to say that makes us Methodists, but it doesn't. Uh, but the method of holiness, cleansing ourselves from every defilement, if, if the method of holiness makes us Methodists, then we're Methodists. But cleansing of ourselves of every defilement of body and spirit. And here's the second, bringing holiness to completion. So how do we do that? Well, it means more than practicing Purity, it means consecrating ourselves to God, completely to God, daily, giving ourselves, our faculties, our nature, our thoughts, our hearts, our, our will, our bodies, our desires, all of them to God. So here's the difference. Here's the difference between Christian ethics and the world's morality. You know, Benjamin Franklin, I've told you about his little list before, his little graph that you drew up, the graph of virtues and the days of the week and, and the squares where he would mark off those virtues after he imagined that he had mastered them one after another, though he did acknowledge that he had never mastered the matter of humility. And, and if he uh, did, he says he would immediately become proud of his humility. Uh, the world, at its very best, may tell its pupils to be good. But, but they're wasting their breath. You know, what's the motive for an unregenerate person to be good? But the vague benefits of virtue and the likely disadvantages of vice. Be good. Or you'll catch this disease. Oh, Swell. Thanks for that advice. What a great direction. What a great motive for being good. You know, be good and people will like you. Oh, well, there's a life to live. But when the living Christ comes, when the living Christ comes and appeals to us, to our regenerate, renewed hearts to love him, when he sheds his love abroad upon our hearts, when he, shed, when he, when he sets himself unstained as the example for us, before us, the things that would be naturally repellent to us actually become attractive. The impossible becomes possible. The undesirable becomes desirable. And if you love me, you will keep my commandments, becomes both the constraining power and the victorious impulse of our lives. Bringing holiness to completion, which is to say striving after holiness every day, a ridiculous thought of drudgery for the unbeliever becomes a delight. It becomes our delight for Christians who would be closer to Christ when we lay our heads on the bed this evening than we were when we woke up and our feet hit the floor this morning. Right? Isn't that your desire? Now, will we be perfected in holiness in this life? That's the question, isn't it? And whole church denominations have been started on this very question. 
Is that what Paul is saying? That we can reach perfection sometime in this, in this life? Well, let me put it to you this way. Near the end of his godly life and ministry, you know what Paul was writing, don't you, in Romans 7. That which I would not do, or that which I would do, I do not do, and that which I would not do, that I do. He was fighting this fight until the day that Nero's blade lifted his head from his shoulders. All of us Christians are in statu viatoris. We are somewhere on the road between the beginning and the great goal and ultimate goal of holiness. All of us are and will be from now to the day they put us six feet under. But we have this promise. He who began a good work in you will carry it on to the day of completion. There is coming a day, my brothers and sisters, when holiness will be complete, when all will be done, and sin will be for us a thing of the past. Can you imagine it? (laughs) It's so hard to imagine, but so wonderful to dream of. Not even tempted to sin anymore. Until then, my brothers and sisters, keep cleansing yourselves. Keep cleansing, keep cleansing, keep cleansing yourself of every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion. So we've considered the motive, the promises of God. We've just considered the method. And now third and briefly, very briefly, consider the means, the fear of God. That's the means. I needn't say much about this to you because we looked closely at this matter just some weeks ago. But may I remind you how important this is? for us in the pursuit of holiness to keep the fear of God before our eyes. Not the slavish, servile fear now of those who are subject to his wrathful judgment for their sin. That's in the past for us. That kind of fear is is over for us. Perfect love has driven that fear out of us. Christ has died for us. God has reconciled us to himself. But that does not change the fact that he remains God. He remains the Most High. He is and ever remains holy, holy, holy. Godly fear does not arise, John Flavel the Puritan put it this way, godly fear does not arise from a perception of God as hazardous now, but as glorious. He's immense, he's almighty and is awesome. Holiness and all of that sobers us, sobers us, even as children. The fear of God we know is the beginning of wisdom, Scripture says, and it is the way that we saw just recently, the way in which Paul himself lived and carried out his ministry. So like Paul's, our lives, brothers and sisters, must be permeated with the gravity, the gravitas of this awesomeness of God, the God we serve and and love. Yes, his promises, his wonderful promises are ours. Praise be to him, but we hear his warnings too. Concerning the consequences, should we turn away from his gospel of grace? Should we receive his grace in vain? Should we lapse into the devastating patterns of sin? 
And of course, ever looming before our mind's eye, before the view of our hearts, is that day when you and I will render to God an answer for everything, every deed, every thought, every word, whether good or evil. Who, who of you, who of you, through carelessness and disloyalty, really want to be the one who stands ashamed before Christ at his coming? Not I. Reverence, awe, devotion toward him whom we owe, to whom we owe everything will carry us in this pursuit of righteousness until the day when holiness will be complete. The day when seeing him even as he is, we shall at last be fully like him. God speed that day. Amen.